did a lot of legwork last week concerning Obadiah throughout the Old Testament, tracing God's love for Jacob and Israel and his people. But we want to dive more fully into the book this morning. And as we do so, I want us to take note really of three things. We want to see these three things this morning. We want to see God's humbling hatred. God's humbling hatred. How God humbles those he hates. But I also want us to see God's humbling love. When God bestows his love on his people, how it humbles us. So God's humbling hatred, God's humbling love. And the last thing that we want to give our attention to this morning is for us to consider Christ, our elder brother. For us to consider Christ, our elder brother from the book of Obadiah. Our focus this morning is this, to see the providential love of God for his people in Obadiah in relation to God's love for his people through Jesus Christ. So let me repeat the the focus, the aim this morning. To see the providential love of God for his people in Obadiah. In relation to God's love for his people through Jesus Christ. Last week, I mentioned we laid the foundation for a better understanding of the book of Obadiah. We saw God's providential love for his people and we followed this biblical theme through scripture. Beginning with the birth of Jacob and Esau and their immediate personal feud, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Before the children were yet to be born, God had determined that he would love Jacob and hate Esau. And then we followed this biblical theme through the Old Testament of God's love for his people from this personal feud into what became a national conflict between Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, and Esau's descendants, the Edomites. And by opposing those God loves, the Edomites made themselves enemies to God. But ultimately, we followed this biblical theme into the New Testament, not just from this personal feud between Jacob and Esau or the national conflict between Israel and Edom, but into the New Testament. And we begin to see the spiritual implications of God's providential love for his people. And Paul explained this well to us, this love of God for his people in Romans chapter 9. Let me reread some of those verses from Romans 9 to just set our hearts and minds again on God's love for his people. Romans chapter 9 verse 6 says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of of promise. At this time I will come. 
and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Though the book of Obadiah was clearly written as God's spoken word concerning the Edomites, the primary audience of this book was the people of Israel. So yes, the entire book has a lot to do concerning the Edomites because verse one says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. But the primary audience of this book was the people of Israel. The primary people in the day that Obadiah penned this this prophetic book, the people reading it were the people from Israel. And in that, God was fulfilling his promise to bestow love on his people. So this is a book of love to the people of Israel, though most of it seems judgment on Edom. Last week, we mentioned three promises that God communicates to his people in the prophet Obadiah. The first one was Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. That's a promise. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealing will return on your own head. God may lovingly discipline his people for a season, but he will most assuredly judge those who harm his people. Actions against God's people are actions against God, and he will act. The second promise that we mentioned last week was found in verse 17, but on Mount Zion... There will be those who escape. That's a promise. Some will escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Those who carry the label of my people, God's people, will escape God's final judgment. Our escape is owed entirely to God's providential love for us. And then Obadiah 21 contains the last promise that we find in Obadiah. The deliverers will ascend ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's a promise. God is sovereign over all and he promises the kingdom will be his. Mentioned last week, I think the book of Obadiah is simple. God will judge his enemies. God will save his people and the kingdom will be the Lord's. I said last week that we must believe in God's providential love for his people as essential to our understanding of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and our subsequent salvation through faith in him. The point is, and I'm trying to make this morning in introducing Obadiah again to you, is that if, if, we, if we understand that from the beginning, God's love for us is not based on our merit, but his sovereign choice alone then we can understand better that the birth, life, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ are at the heart of God's providential love for his people. 
It was all planned. It was all tied into the providential love that God has for his people. And knowing the love of Christ is not only the same as the love of God in the Old Testament, like the book of Obadiah, but indeed the fulfillment of it. And this will help us to tie the truth of the gospel to what God communicates to us and his people in the book of Obadiah. So our aim this morning is to see how the sovereign love of God causes him to act simultaneously for his people and against his enemies. The book of Obadiah is the perfect perfect example of this. So look with me in Obadiah to see how God humbles both the people of Edom in his promised judgment and the people of Israel with his promised deliverance. We looked at those promises just a minute ago. So let's look first this morning at God's humbling hatred. God's humbling hatred. Look with me in verse 2. It comes out immediately in the book. Behold, he's speaking to Edom. I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. It's pretty clear language. If he said in Malachi, Esau, I have hated. He's only saying it again here in Obadiah. Edom, you are greatly despised. So let's make clear from the beginning that the biblical theme laid last week is supported in God's opening statement to Edom. You are greatly despised. God is saying, as much as we have to wrestle with this in our mind, God is saying to Edom, I hate you. You are despised. So with this hatred in mind, let's look at exactly how and why God opposed the people of Edom. Well, for us to understand God's humbling hatred, I think we need to lean on some biblical truths to do so. The first is this. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. That's right out of Scripture, and we'll look at that later. But I think we see it very clearly in the book of Obadiah as well. God promises to oppose those who are proud in heart, and that is exactly what we find in the people of Edom. To fully grasp the text, we must know a little geographical information concerning Israel and its relation to the surrounding terrain. See, Edom was located to the southeast of Israel in the Sierra Mountains. So this country is nestled in the mountaintops just to the southeast of Israel. And they were quite literally in this rocky terrain. And they had a great view on every side down on the surrounding countries below. Edom had natural defenses in these mountains. And because of their defensive position, they thought themselves to be safe from all their enemies. They were literally and figuratively above everyone else. Look with me in Obadiah verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Do you see the prideful attitude that they had? All because of their position? But it wasn't just their geographical position. Politically speaking, they were in good shape too because they had made themselves allies to everyone around them. 
Edom had deceived themselves in their assessment of their position, both geographically and politically. In pride, they thought themselves to be above the rest. They were blessed with wise men, politically speaking, and they had a strong military and were situated in a naturally defensive position. But they made a crucial mistake that I think our country has made and that I think we make as individuals so often. Edom had forgot to consider God. They'd considered all the things of the world, but they had forgot to consider God. There's a very important lesson to be learned here. Pride deceives us. It, it flatters us. It lies to us. And we're so easily willing to believe when our pride begins to speak to us about who we are. And we proudly put our trust in things that are not from God. So let me give warning to us this morning. Don't take security in anything other than God himself. No matter how good things seemingly are around you. The reality is God has made us in his image to know him. And we will give an account to him one day. It doesn't matter how strong or prosperous or successful you may be. In the end, none of those things matter when you have to give an account to God for yourself. Pride deceives us, just as it did the people of Edom. Humility is the way of God. It is the fruit of God's spirit. It's evidence that God is genuinely working in you. Humble yourself. Pride is your enemy. It's your greatest enemy. And humility is our greatest friend. Humility means that we're not offended so easily by others. That less offends us. That we consider others. This is true not just of nations like Edom, but of us as individuals. And to put it in a corporate perspective, it's true of churches. Listen to me. Let me remind you this morning of a biblical truth that I think we believe, but so often we just lose sight of. Pride in your life makes God your enemy. Edom failed to consider their creator, the omnipotent one who possessed all power and is mightier than all that they had considered. They walked in pride. To not consider God is at the root of all pride. In a sense, it is saying, God, I don't need you. Look with me in Obadiah verse 4. Listen to what God says about their arrogance. Remember, they... They lived in the clefts of the rocks, in the loftiness of their dwelling place. They said in their heart, who will bring me down to earth? Well, God responds in verse 4. Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. That's an emphatic statement. From there I will bring you down. I will bring you down down, declares the Lord. That's how God feels about pride. 
That's how God acts toward pride. Edom was full of pride. Therefore, God would humble them through his opposition to them. Edom was blinded to their vulnerability and how quickly they would fall. Look with me again as we just continue to push through the book of Obadiah. Look in verse 5. This is what God says will happen. I want you to see the vulnerability of Edom. Though they they viewed themselves as a, a fortress that they couldn't be penetrated, that they had political alliance, that they had military power, that they had this defensive position. Listen to what God, God says. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. Would they not steal only till they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you, listen to this, will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. And they who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timon, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. It's a bleak picture that God has painted for the people of Edom and it's drastically different than the one they've painted for themselves. I don't know if any of you have ever been robbed before. Verse 5 says, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. But robbery, robbery leaves you with a strange sense of vulnerability to be exposed by someone that you don't even know. It's a gut-riching feeling. And that's what God promises Edom. Edom's protections were useless. The greatest forms of human protections are all, in the end, finally worthless underneath the judgment of God. See, no matter what kind of fortress we build for ourselves, no matter what kind of security net or safety that we build around ourselves, when God's judging light is shed upon it, it it just crumbles. It's not so safe. It's not so secure. But the opposite is true for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of imminent danger, God's protection is the most safest. Is that, can I say most safest? The most safest place to be. But God uses our gullible and inordinate trust in things other than himself to overcome us. Edom's pride is exactly what caused them to fall. It is undetectable. God loves justice and he abhors anyone who is unjust. I don't know about you, but I find two different emotions running as I'm reading Obadiah. And as I'm seeing God speak of his judgment to Edom, on one side I'm saying, yes, yes, God, get them. 
They opposed your people. They deserve to be crushed. And then on the other hand, I keep looking at the people of Edom. And I keep thinking about my own pride. And I keep thinking to myself, have I put myself in such a position to make myself an enemy of God? I see so much of my sin in Edom to this day. The sin that I have to confess most to other brothers and sisters when I've sinned against them is my pride. I probably should confess it more to my wife than I do, but she could testify that when Brian is in his pride, he's most sinful. We all have alienated God with our pride. So I'm asking you, as I'm telling myself this morning, to repent of our pride, to humble yourselves and put your faith in Christ. By the time that God would get finished with the Edomites, they would have no leadership left. He says in verse 8, Will I not on that day destroy wise men from Edom? That was their political leaders. He says, I'm going to destroy them. All your leadership will be destroyed. They'll be wiped out. And it says that your mighty men, O Timon, will be dismayed. Timon was most likely the military training headquarters of Edom, where its mightiest warriors would be based. And God says to them in a word, they'll be dismayed, they'll be confused. They'll have no strategy. They'll have no defense. They'll have no hope. They'll have no chance when my judgment is rained down on them. So both government and military will be reduced to nothing. The point that I'm trying to make is that God will humble those who in pride believe that they are safe from God without God. You're not safe from God without God. And if you take the position that you are, God will humble you. The second thing that I want us to see in God's humbling hatred is not only that he opposes the proud, but God repays the cruel. God repays the cruel. Look with me in verses 10 through 15. I'll read the text to you and then we'll we'll try to pull it apart. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, that's Israel's wealth, and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day of his misfortune and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the, day of their, in the day of their disaster. Yes, you. Do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road and cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. 
as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealing will return on your own head. We must not forget that actions against God's people are actions against God. So when Israel, Jacob, was faced with violence from the Babylonians, Edom, that's Esau, did not offer help or hospitality, but violence of their own. And that not to a stranger, but to his own brother. Let's not forget that Jacob and Esau were brothers. God will destroy them forever, eternally. Not just physically, but eternally. Let me make a a quick side note. So often I hear questions concerning this. But offense to Israel, the country today, has less to do with how we treat Israel. Let's think spiritually. And more to do with the spread of the gospel among other nations. We need to keep in mind that the spiritual implications we talked about last week supersede that of the original feud between the brothers, Jacob and Esau, and even the national conflict between Israel and Edom. Edom was complying with others who were violating Israel. They looked down from their mountaintop. They were looking on as Israel was being destructed. And God says they were being a part of the process by watching with joy. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Edom was taking joy in the disaster of Israel. Though Edom is Israel's older brother, Scripture says, verse 11, he stood aloof. He stood back. He just let it happen. Okay? Whatever you want to do to Israel, y'all do. I'll watch. If any of you have an older brother, you can only imagine what that maybe feel like. The, the days aren't too far gone for me. I know I'm over the hill these days, but I can remember walking home from school one day and a pack of rowdy boys was pestering me on the way home. And my older brother was about 30 feet behind. And I turned and reminded them that he was there and it, it resolved the problem. I can't imagine what it would be like if I would have turned and reminded him that he was there and he would have said to him, y'all just do whatever you want. Have fun with him. I can't imagine what that would have felt like. Yet that's what Israel was getting a taste of, but on a much larger and horrific scale. It says, on that day you stood aloof. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. Listen to what it says about Obadiah, excuse me, about Edom and Obadiah. You two were as one of them. The day of their disaster, the day of Israel's need. Edom gloated over them. They became an accessory to the problem after the fact. Like a looter after a hurricane who would rob their own family store. That's what it's like. 
because of these actions on Edom's part, God says, you too were as one of them. You're one of the enemies. What an indictment. You were as one of the enemies of God. And though you were his elder brother, you acted as an enemy. That's significant. I want us to see the brutality of their actions. It's one thing to just stand aloof like verse 11 says, but it's much more. To take action with the enemies of Israel. Listen to verse 14. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Now let me paint again the picture. These are foreign enemies, the Babylonians who have come into Israel and invaded. And they are literally crushing the country of Israel. But because they're foreigners, they don't know the local roads and passageways. And so there is a remnant of Israelites who are able to escape and they start taking these back roads, these secret passageways and trails to get out of town. They're fleeing for their lives. Unfortunately, there's another people group who know these same passageways because it's their neighbor. It's the Edomites. And so literally, let's remember that this is, this is not a figurative war. This really happened. These are real people fleeing from the real terror of war, scared to death. And it's all they can do to get out of town and escape on these passageways, probably with little to nothing in their hands, leaving behind carnage of not just their homes and possessions, but probably lost family members. And they're on these roads, scared to death. And as they're traveling these pathways, real people suffering from the fear of war, fleeing for their very lives. They're met on these back roads by heartless Edomites who cut them down. They're waiting with sword. And as they're running on these back roads, they're met by Edomites who slay them and imprison them and take advantage of them in their day of distress. That's cruel. And God promises judgment in Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealing will return on your own head. God promised to repay Edom for all of its evil toward his people. God will humble those he hates. By, by setting himself in opposition to them. And God's judgment will be swift. God's judgment will be thorough and it will be final. None of his enemies will escape the horror that awaits them. What Edom did to Israel is nothing compared to what God had in store for them. So I want us to see very clearly in the text God's humbling hatred. But I also want us to see God's humbling love. As much as the promise of divine justice should encourage us, 
I want us to see the other side of the coin. In the same way that God completely destroys his enemies, he delivers those he loves. So with the same passion that God had toward those he hated, he has toward those he loves. He delivers those he loves. God will gently humble those he loves. There are two sides to God's humbling power. We can be humbled in our opposition to God by his judgment, or we can be humbled by God's gracious deliverance of us through faith and repentance. It's a very humbling thing to reckon with God either way. Either way, we are going to reckon with God. And whether you do that in the form of his judgment or in the form of his salvation, it's a very humbling thing. True believers are daily humbled by God's loving kindness toward his people. We are daily reminded that we have, not in, we have not earned his love, but rather he has bestowed it on us. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. God promises that some will escape. We're reminded that our deliverance is entirely dependent on something or someone Jesus Christ, outside of ourselves, we are humbled by such loving generosity. The people of Israel had no hope in that day. They were being crushed by the, the, by the Babylonians and they were being cut down by the Edomites. And their government was gone. And their military was gone. And they had no hope unless somebody intervened who was more powerful than their enemies. And that someone is God. When God acts on behalf of his people and saves, it is a very humbling thing. Well, let us conclude this morning. I don't want to confuse you when I say conclude. It's kind of like one of Paul's letters. There's still some content to be covered, but it is our concluding thoughts I want us to consider Christ our brother. Let's conclude this morning by looking again at the text, considering Edom's treatment of his brother Israel first. I want us to now consider the gospel. So let's, let's, let's put the gospel in our mind. What Christ has done for us as we talk about what Edom did toward his brother. To consider Edom's actions compared to those of Christ. Yes, Israel's own sin had caused this dilemma. Let's not forget this. God's people were in rebellion here. And God was using the Babylonians and even the Edomites, who he hated, to discipline his people. But this was no time for a brother to ignore his brother's need for help. So I want us to see where Edom pridefully considers himself. Christ considers us. See, Edom acted in his pride. In Israel's hour of need, Edom pridefully considered themselves above, better than Israel. They smugly sat atop their mountain and gloated in the destruction of Israel down below. And though Edom was Jacob's older brother, 
In Jacob's distress, he responded in pride. And he helped him not. But Christ, our elder brother, with humility of mind, considered others more than more important than himself. And his attitude was, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Edom had the opportunity to humbly extend grace to his brother Jacob, but he chose not to. Christ had no responsibility to show us humility and love and grace, and yet he chose to, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So where Edom showed pride to his brother Israel, Christ shows humility to us, his people. He humbly was crucified on a cross to pay the price for our sins. Do you see the contrast between Edom and Christ? We have the pride of Edom and the humility of Christ, but we also have the indifference of Edom. In my preparation, the most disturbing verse to me, I think, is verses 10 and 11. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, that bothers me. The reason that I say that is because two phrases. It says in verse 10, your brother Jacob. And then it says, you stood aloof. Edom stood aloof in the day of his brother's need. He was indifferent at best. He could care less about their condition. He acted, according to Obadiah, as an enemy of Israel. But Christ, he wasn't full of inaction like Edom was to Jacob. Christ acted on our behalf. He sacrificed himself. For while we were still helpless, like the people of Israel, underneath the crushing blow of the Babylonians, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Edom could care less. He stood aloof. Christ cared dearly. He didn't stand aloof. He acted with his life. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Where Edom stood aloof in indifference, Christ acted on our behalf. He died for his brother on a cross. We were helpless, and Christ acted on our behalf. But I want us to continue to see how Edom treated Israel. Look at the greed of Edom, the selfishness of Edom. Verse 13 of Obadiah, Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, You do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. In Israel's run, excuse me, ruin, Edom looted their wealth. Whatever, whatever, excuse me, Israel had left to its name, Edom took. They took, they took it all. They took everything Israel had. But I want us to see Christ. Where Edom acted selfishly, Christ acts unselfishly. We see the compassion of Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, when he sees his people, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. This is how Christ has acted toward us. 
Where Edom saw an opportunity to make himself wealthier, Christ saw the poverty of his people and had compassion on them. Christ gave up himself for the church, for his people. And I mentioned earlier the cruelty of Edom. How they, verse 14, they stood at the fork of the road and cut down the fugitives and imprisoned the survivors in the day of their distress. Edom, excuse me, Edom heartlessly cut down his brother fleeing for safety. Israel just wanted help. It was just looking for safety. And Edom cut him down. He showed his brother cruelty. But Christ, Christ showed his brother's salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Where Edom ruthlessly murdered his brother, Christ gave himself to be murdered as a sacrifice for his brothers and raised from the dead to deliver us from the wrath to come. Let me read just a few verses from 1 John chapter 4 because I want us to be reminded again of the theme in closing. The theme that Obadiah presents to us. This providential love for God. And how it's so strongly connected to the love of Christ for his people. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 says this. In this is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A few verses later, verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides In love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Let's pray together.